0: Welcome to POT Academy. This is the second of the Houston Film Lectures, a series of lectures given to students at the National University of Ireland's Houston School of Film and Digital Media in Galway. The lecture series features leading film directors, writers, producers, cinematographers, and academics. This second lecture, about screenwriting, is given by Howard A. Rodman, an American screenwriter and novelist, whose recent films include August, starring Josh Harnett and David Bowie, Savage Grace with Julianne Moore, and Joe Gold's Secret.
1: What I wanted to talk about today is scene writing, because I think that something really terrible happened to... Screenwriting about 18 years ago, and that was that people began to realize there was money in teaching screenwriting, and I think you know it has been the ruination of, of of many things. I remember once talking to Abe Polansky. Do you folks know who he is? He's an American writer and writer-director. He wrote Body and Soul. He wrote and directed Ports of Evil. These were wonderful movies. So he was blacklisted from. 1946 until 1968. Oh, right. Couldn't work under his own name. I remember asking him about screenwriting, and he said, teaching screenwriting? He said, teaching screenwriting is a good thing to do if you're a teacher of screenwriting. And he said, everything I know about screenwriting I learned from the commissary at Paramount Studios. And then he said, nope, I didn't learn it there either. What I think happened was it started when... Sid Field wrote a book called Screenplay. Have any of you read it or heard of him? I'm doing a great unfairness to him, but I'll just say, here's what he said. This is, I think, all of it in some ways true, but I think as we'll see later, it's also ruinous. He said, a movie is roughly to our thing. A page of screenplay is roughly equivalent to a minute of screen time. So... That's who our movie is 120-page screenplay. Movies, like plays, like human lives, have acts. So there's act one, act two, act three. Act one is pages one through 30, or the first 30 minutes of the film. Act two, because second act is traditionally longer, is page 30 through page 90. And act three begins on page 90. Somewhere along page three or page 10, depending on what edition of screenplay you have, there is the inciting incident, the thing that kicks you into the screenplay. Somewhere around page 27, 28, there is the little thing that propels you into Act 2. And around page 87, 88, there's the thing that propels you into Act 3. So he wrote this book, which said those things. If he had said just those things, it wouldn't have been a long book. But he padded it out with examples of movies which could be seen to have obeyed these rules. Uh, the book was a wild bestseller. His courses were oversubscribed. And... It got to the point where he had to write another book, so he wrote a sequel in which he said a minute mm-hmm. of screen time is a page of screenplay. Movies are two hours; screenplays are 120 pages long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 but something happens on page 60 point. because many people had sort of complained about that Sag- <laughs> segment, so he propped it up in the middle. Two things I think happened as a result of this book and um, the other books that spawned. One was that the people at studios and production companies who always were in charge of giving notes to writers now had a whole new set of cudgels with which to beat up writers. Where's your inciting incident? What's the character's arc? What's his growth curve? Something's going something's around the midpoint. And then the other thing that happened was that on on the production side of of the model, a whole bunch of people who thought, I have a life, I have a story, they bought the book and thought, now I can write a screenplay. And in general, I think the democratization of any art is a fine and wonderful thing, in most cases. In this case, (laughs) the idea that anybody could write a screenplay, I think, was in some ways a very lovely flowering of an art form. Anyone know that, that, that great quote from, I think, L'Autre Amant that was one of the graffitis on the French walls during May of 68, which says, poetry should be made by all and not by one. And I, well, I believe that. Or there's the example of the Romantic poets. Um, before around mid-1700s, um, poetry was something that you did um, if you were a gentleman. And you know, it wasn't for women at all, and it wasn't for lower-class men at all. And it was basically among the things you did if you were well-worn and a man, like knowing how to tie a cravat so that it had the right number of wrinkles, like knowing how to fold up the proper corner of your visiting card when putting it on the silver tray to indicate the purpose of your visit. It was just among the things you knew if you were you know, uh, the, the, a gentleman. After the romantic poets in general, and after Lord Byron in particular, Poetry became a vehicle for expressing feelings and I would say uh, it opened up a whole world of poetry which would not have existed otherwise, uh, in which poetry became something where you could express feelings, express thoughts, express sentiments as opposed to a more rigid, more codified kind of form than you did if you were of a certain class. It also opened the floodgates up for generation generation after generation of truly rancid adolescent confessional poetry some of which I think you've probably read, much of which I know I've written, and I hope you have too. But as regards screenplays, what happened was both on the producing side, all these people writing screenplays, and on the consuming side, all of these people at studios and production companies who are reading screenplays, screenplays became reduced to structure, midpoints, inciting incidents, character arcs. Uh, And all of these, I think, have been ruinous, to the motion picture industry because it means that every movie ends up being the same movie. I think largely it means that there used to be a whole panoply of human emotions that were permissible in movies and now there is only one. Anybody want to guess what that emotion is? Mm -hmm. Triumph. (laughs) Um, No movie is a movie unless someone is able to pump his or her arm and say the word yes. (laughs) That's a movie. Yes. Without that, no movie. That, that obviously
0: goes along with the rule that if you want to start the Hollywood
1: reaction, I think. Well, yeah. Um, at any rate, um, after Sid Field came, you know, uh, Robert McKee, who you may have seen deftly uh, played by Brian Cox in adaptation, and John Truman, a whole bunch of uh, gurus of the screenplay. What you had then was a whole industry which, which wanted its acts to fall exactly where they were supposed to fall. Which cared more about the fact that there were acts rather than what was in them. And the only thing that that, that really became necessary about a character was that he or she had an arc. Have you you come across this term? Basically, you know, basically, I think mostly what it's supposed to mean is the guy starts out selfish and ends up realizing he's connected to the world and gives his money away. Or the guy starts out unable to love and ends up able to cry. Whenever I hear about arcs, particularly when I hear about them in terms of from people at studios who are demanding arcs, I am reminded of a story about the late actor Steve McQueen who was offered a screenplay and this was before the word arc was in common currency. So the producer didn't say, look at the arc of this character, but the producer said, look at this guy you get to play. I mean, you know, he starts out here and he ends up over here. It's, you know, it's, it's just a great thing Steve McQueen said. I don't want to be the guy who learns, I want to be the guy who knows, and I think for Steve McQueen, who had a very good understanding of his screen character, he knew that what people were paying to see was not the emotional education of Steve McQueen, not silent man A few words becomes um, in touch with his emotions, but here's a guy who knows what he's doing, he does it, he does it well, he does it well again, he does it well again, end of movie. You know, that's a Steve McQueen movie, and it's supremely satisfying. A lot of what I think of as the decline in commercial American cinema, um, you know, the Honest Mirabilis 1974, when you had things like Godfather II and The Conversation and Chinatown, and, you know, in the years before and after, things like um, Night Moves and King of Marvin Gardens. And I mean, I could go on and on and on with that was that screenplays all of a sudden had to have three acts and they had to have characters with arcs and they had to have midpoints so that they didn't have that saggy middle. And all of a sudden people weren't talking about writing anymore. Uh, it was as if they were talking about building suspension bridges. You know, we you know, have a river to cross so we have to have this cable here and these cables hanging in front and stuff like that. And I think real writing is elsewhere to my mind, writing is less about index cards, uh, less about plot points, beats, sequences, than it is about the wonderful and terrible and impossible task of taking lived human lives and putting them down on a piece of paper so that they could be reconstituted on a screen with actors. I mean, it's almost a kind of weird... Has anybody here when they were a kid, ever seen in the back of the magazine an ad for freeze-dried sea monkey and mm-hmm. sent away for it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's sort of what screenplay writing is. You take real life and you, you put it in like a little 120-page packet and then you hope that somebody will pour water in the other and and they will blossom and they will be sea monkeys. <laughs> the little instruction booklet that I got with sea monkeys, I wish I still had, but there's a sentence of it that I still remember. It said, Treat your sea monkeys with dignity. Do not give them silly names. Give them proper names, like Agamemnon. <laughs> Screenwriting, <laughs> too. I mean, you know, call your screenplays Agamemnon, don't call them like disco pigs. <laughs> cool. At any rate, it seems to me that, along with the rise of structure, th- there became another kind of split between, you know... Writing, which became kind of literary writing, which became sort of fay and precious and overwrought, and then there was screenplays, which had nothing to do with writing. You know, I mean, it was sort of you know you could do it you could do it with a word processor. You didn't even need a typewriter. You didn't even need a pen. You, know, you just need 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 the software. <laughs> and, and, and in a funny way, I think you know, uh, out of the great grand tradition where there were writers and screenwriters, and you know, they were all one big. Great mess of pottage. You now had Eloys and Morlocks. You had the screenwriters who had these thick necks and walked around like this and were, plot point, plot point, midpoint, plot point, arc, surprise, whoever <laughs> And then you had these sort of pale, thin, green people who were doing writing. Um, I don't know if you get here the <clears throat> public, uh, national public radio show Bookworm with Michael Silverblood here. Um, you know, I mean, that is the, the, the very apotheosis of the kind of thing that, that, that the other kind of writing became, you know. I was reading your book and couldn't help but be struck by the number of times that. You know, I mean, so, that kind of thing. And then, you know, of course, you have screenwriters with guns in the glove compartments of their cards, <laughs> you know, bringing them out at meetings to prove that they really care about their writing or care about their structure. Maybe. And, you know, basically if they're going to use Sidfield field to beat you up about your midpoint, you're going to take out your revolver to threaten to shoot them at the This is progress. So what I want to do today is to take all of that stuff about beats, arcs, acts, index cards, structure, and for the duration of this morning at least, leave it outside the door. And what I want to talk about is really smaller stuff, um, because I think that's where writing lives. I'm not sure, I mean, I think all of us who write screenplays, all of us who write, need to be good, have a good critical eye and be good editors of our own work and need to be able to write something and then wake up the next morning and say, that was crap. Mm -hmm. And I think that without that skill, you're lost, (coughs) because then you write crap and crap and crap, and You you never know it. But I think without the other skill, which is the ability to write without a censor, the ability to write something which may be great and may be awful, and to spare the judgment until the next day, or until sometimes the next month, is is equally valuable, if not more valuable. And I think that kind of writing often comes less from the conscious mind than from the unconscious. And I know that when I'm writing at my best, you can laugh at this, I hear voices in my head, Mm -hmm. I wake up in the morning knowing things about my screenplay that I didn't know when I went to sleep. And when I listen to the voices, the writing is good. The voices have never yet led me astray. Sometimes I write a screenplay, and for the whole length of a screenplay, and I never hear them. It's, well, it's structure trying to creep back
0: in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I think that far too much attention is paid to the kind of beats and rhythm and structure, I and mean, very little to sort of how in the world to beat quiet enough so that those small, 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 small voices can speak through you. And then I think it is at the level of the scene where those two things come into play, because on the one hand, scenes work or not, because your characters are surprising you as as you're writing them. If they don't surprise you, they're never going to surprise anybody else. If they don't satisfy you, they won't satisfy anybody else. So I think it's at the level of the scene where our notions of sort of the unconscious of surprise, of voices speaking through us, of us being quiet enough to be a vessel through which the characters can do what they do. And certain smaller considerations of structure, because scenes have rhythms, and scenes have beats, and scenes actually have beginnings and ends. But rather than subject them to the terrible kind of metronome of structure, we're just going to look at scenes and and see what they tell us. Uh, Before we dive into that, I'm going to... um, now completely reverse myself and start giving rules. And I expect you to either write them down or you can, if you don't have paper, you can memorize them. It's up to you. Rule number one. Treat a scene the way you would a really terrible dinner party. Arrive late, leave early. I would say almost every time you write a scene, it's worth it crossing off the first two lines of dialogue and actually seeing if you're losing anything or if you've got a better scene. <clears throat> Often, once you've got a screenplay together, you can take the last beat, the beat where it sort of gets resolved and pulled together and, and sometimes if you just eliminate it entirely you're, you're sprung much more propulsively into the next scene. So, that's, so these are always things to, to look at in scenes, you know. Can we begin later? Can we end earlier? Other rules are, uh, and this is a question that I think, you know, one asks of scenes, whose scene is it? And and from the outset, that seems like a very naive question. But it's not necessarily the protagonist of the entire screenplay. I mean, individual scenes can be sort of owned by a whole bunch of different people. And um, often what is sort of fuzziness or vagueness or just a kind of weird kind of lingering sense of this isn't working can be cured if you just have a sense of whose who, who, who's scene is it. One of the ways of figuring that out is um, who wants something. Who wants something. Who wants something badly? Because that's usually the person whose scene it is. And I'll, you know, this is being overly simplistic now. We'll back away from this later. But an awful lot of the work of the scene is really about somebody wants something badly and runs well, into an obstacle. Sometimes it's another person. Sometimes it's an automobile that won't start. Sometimes it's the demon within. (laughs) Um, But there's stuff like that. And generally, although I wouldn't make a fetish of it, because if you just have people wanting stuff badly 24-7, 365, then you get Michael Bay movies. But generally what propels a scene along, kind of, sort of, is somebody wants something, and, and on their way to getting it, something else happens. Sometimes an obstacle, sometimes an insight, sometimes a distraction. I mean, even movies which are not plot-driven. Anybody know the movie Kings of the Road, the Wim Vendors movie about in Now that's not a movie you go to because it's got a gripping plot. But in every scene of that movie, you know, there are these two guys, they sort of want stuff, things happen, you know. It creates a little local dramatic interest, if not like a sort of <mum> plot. So, so. I would say what I want to do today is look at some scenes and subject them to those questions and maybe a few others. Is it beginning as late as it could? Is it ending as early as it can? Whose scene is it? What do they want? What stands in their way? Is that contradiction worth sharpening? Is it worth kicking sand over because it's too sharp? Is there too much subtext? Not enough subtext. Too much blog? Not enough blog. You know? And, you know, the other things that you do, you know. If this is Romeo's scene, look at it from Juliet's point of view. Would it make sense there? You know, I mean, the scene has to make sense from the point of view of each individual character, even though it's probably all that stuff. So, in some ways, that seems overly simplistic, all of these rules, I think. In other ways, though, I think there are less rules than just sort of good interrogations you can apply to your scene, but after you've written it, not before, because before... You don't want to think about any of this stuff. I mean, some of it, as you write more and more and more and more, becomes kind of second nature, becomes part of your process without thinking about it, as does, by the way, the three-act structure, which becomes just kind of hardwired a little bit. You know, when you're writing scenes, you don't want to really be worrying about that stuff. I think those are things that either become internalized or you ask afterwards, because if you're writing to the rules, then you might as well be doing a paint-by-numbers painting.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast, which is part of the Pod Academy's exclusive series of lectures from the Houston School of Film and Digital Media. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not check out our other lectures and interviews on PodAcademy.org.